The 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's episode, we are joined by Paul Rack. Paul is the president and original founder of Veriform Incorporated, a metal fabrication company started in 1997 in Cambridge, Ontario. He is also a founding member of the Regional Sustainability Initiative in Waterloo Region and the first industrial to join the group. Paul has spoken or been a keynote speaker at nearly 90 events and conferences since 2006, both in the US and Canada, on incorporating sustainability into your business and the many financial benefits of approaching business with a sustainability mindset. Now let's get into the episode with Paul. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you, Lysandra. And listen, we won't have to talk over John because he's not here as yet. So uh, I'm looking forward to this episode as well. It's always a successful intro when only one of you is here. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Well, today we're joined by our guest, Paul Rack, the president and owner of Veriform Incorporated. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you, Lysandra. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. So, Paul, I I have to tell you, you are a man in demand from our listeners because your name has been stated many times by one of our, our guests. Bob Willard, who you know well, and we know yes. quite well, and he spoke very highly of yourself. And, we, and, and recently we did a, a seminar with Bob, and uh, he talked about you with a bunch of manufacturers. And those manufacturers go, look, we, you, you've got to get him on the podcast. You've got, like, we want to hear about this. And uh, so really excited about this because our listeners are going to hear you have done this sustainability work for years. It's not one year. It's not two years. It's years you're a business owner you actually own and operate a business that's yes. really critical yes and the third thing which is even more powerful for maybe some of our listeners is you come from the sme like the small medium enterprise and so a lot of times people think oh only big organizations do this it doesn't make sense to do small stuff but our listeners are in for a treat because you have been pretty successful which i think and what you do. So welcome. And I'll start off with the first question just for our listeners. So tell me, why should any business move towards sustainability? And if you could speak as a business owner, why that even makes sense? Certainly. But before I answer that question, Dave, I'll be a bit of a politician and say, whoever's listening right now, I don't want them to discount my story because, oh, here, Veriform, my company is just an industrial company. What we've done here applies to commercial sites as well. On our website, we have our first 37 projects listed. And if you look at the first 37 projects, two thirds are are done within the office environment. The other third are done in the plant. So it could be a chamber of commerce building. It could be a school. It could be an insurance company. It could be an extruding company that's very high energy, but doesn't have necessarily motors. They just have heat systems to extrude. So you could take our projects, which are now over hundred. And if you analyzed it, Many of them are inside the office setting, whether it be looking at more efficient LED screens to to more efficient lighting, to having zoned lighting, even as something as simple as coffee systems. Later, I'll, I'll share that story. It's a simple one. So why would a company adopt sustainability? There was a Kinsey report back in 2011. There's about at least 12 different reasons why a company would adopt it. For us, we adopted it first uh, because of my daughter. She was born in 2006. And... In that time when she was born, I saw three things happened. First, she was born. I saw Al Gore's movie, The Inconvenient Truth, 
and I bought a Prius. And I remember buying the Prius for her sake. I thought, you know what, if I'm driving down the highway, we know that within 100 feet or 100 meters of a highway, people have a higher rate of, of cancer. So I thought, you know what, that's probably because of the vehicles. It's, you know, that those two are definitely correlated. So by buying the Prius, I know if my daughter is driving along with us, she's going to be breathing a little cleaner air because there's no emissions from the vehicle. So I did it mostly for altruistic reasons. Now, my partner, my wife, she's the vice president and she's a McMaster graduate from finance and she's the financial wizard here. And with her, it's about doing it for financial savings. So I did altruistically. She's more about how much is it and what's it going to save us? So I would say that's as simple as I can get. What's it going to save the company in terms of, of energy costs? Most businesses, I think, are doing it for that reason. And for us, it's been a huge win. When we did our first project, it was a really simple one. We took the bay door system. In the wintertime, we were doing work for National Steel Car for the rail cars, and the bay doors were open four hours a day in the middle of winter. So we were spending in a small 11,000 square foot facility, we were spending $6,000 a month just on heating. And that, that adds no value to our end product, to our customer. We installed a simple limit switch on the door. When the door opens, the heat turns off. And so all of a sudden, the shipper who said, Paul, I can't get the trucks in here. I don't have room. As soon as the heat was turned off, he made room and brought the trucks in and closed the door. It was incredible. The next month was March and our bill went down to $570. So we were wasting over $5,400 on heating, getting nothing for it, no more profit, we're actually losing money. And by just putting in these little limits, which is five of them, cost us $1,250 and paid for itself in, in about a week or so. That was one of the best payback projects ever. I did it because I was frustrated knowing that the carbon footprint from all that heating was really horrible for our carbon footprint. But when I saw the financial savings, I remember my bookkeeper came into my office and said, Paul, you have to see the natural gas bill for this month. I said, no, no, just read it to me. No, no, you have to see it with your own eyes. So I, I grabbed it. I said, what? How can it go down to 570? Were we wasting that much energy? So that was a happy outcome. I did it for, for altruistic reasons and it solved so many problems. And one of them was the cost. I didn't expect it to be that dramatic. And so that's when we started going, maybe there's more things we can do. And then we actually started doing two or three projects a month for the first few years. And that's why we racked up 37 projects in a matter of two years. And then we won the Chamber of Commerce Award as well as a result. But it was, uh, for me, it was an eye opener. I didn't realize that the financial savings could be there. And my partner, Rana, she said, don't do these things until you can prove it. So, so then I had to start really doing research into how much will I save? And uh, because we can veto each other here. And so those projects on average, they paid for themselves in about six, 6.5 months. It's, it's documented on our website. And the hundred projects we're doing now, we're actually documenting them, but the financial savings is incredible. Employee retention is incredible. We're now part of seven other divisions and the employee retention here is really high compared to the other divisions. And, and we were also rated for the culture, the development environment, therefore out of the seven divisions was scored the highest. And I, I attribute that to that mindset that we're doing things altruistically and also for financial savings. So I just want to pick up, and this is actually a statement, Paul, and that is it starts at the top and you yes. and your wife, you know, did it for two different reasons. Both were for business reasons, by the way, or, or personal reasons. And, and it started at the top and because the rest of the team or the people in your organization saw 
that you did it and that you continue to do it, then it's real to them that you're building a culture. So congratulations to you. I do want to make this comment because I spoke to Paul prior to this podcast. I crossed Ontario in 2008 trying to get companies to do exactly what you did. And so the fact that you have done it for so long, it's remarkable. So I'm hoping that our listeners will understand this this is not a project. This is a continuous effort going forward. 100%. What gets my goat is when I see somebody do one thing, let's say put solar panels on their lawn or on their building, and they put a big sign up, we've gone green. I understand why they put that sign out, but that's that really doesn't make them green. It's just, we've done one green thing. I think it should be more accurate to say, we've done one green thing. But no, we started seeing the cumulative effect of all these projects. So that I call it baby steps. You're not going to achieve sustainability through doing your lights. That's that's one good step, but you've really got to keep going. And then what I found was that the projects started paying for new projects. So the savings from the earlier projects, which were the easiest, you know, the, the low hanging fruit, they start actually paying for the other projects I wanted to do that might have a year payback or two year payback. And then the energy savings was phenomenal. We started tracking it. And that was one of the big things was we've had a spreadsheet. And this is early on when Google, if you type into Google, what's the carbon emissions or carbon effect of using paper over hand dryers that I remember doing that. I, I typed that in and I only got about four or five hits with Google. I think if you type that same question in now to Google, it would be hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of results. So it just tells you how far things have come along in terms of the discussions about what is better. Is paper in a bathroom better than a hand dryer? That's already been answered. But back in 2006, it really wasn't. I had to do a lot of math to figure out what a pound of paper out of a paper dispenser, towel dispenser in the bathroom would result in terms of greenhouse gases. But now it's available easily to anybody. Well, Paul, I think we can all relate to those two main points, doing things for loved ones and looking to save money. So thanks for that very relatable experience. As a process improvement coordinator, I clearly like a process and I know a lot of our listeners do too. So that being said, what are the top five steps for a business to become sustainable? That question, Lysandra, I've actually mulled over my brain. And <laughs> what I was saying last night when I was brushing my teeth, I actually have on our website five golden rules which you mm. could use as five steps. I don't see them as being the five steps that you're looking for. I'll share how we did it. First, we found a reason for doing it. And that's really the most important reason. The most important first step is, are you doing it for financial savings? Are you doing it to reduce waste? Are you doing it to reduce or to handle new restrictions or new, new laws around governing your emissions? So for us, our reason was for our daughter and for financial savings, because the, the our sector, the net profit for our sector when I did an analysis with Wilfred Laurier, postgraduate students that I hired to do analysis of the fabricating sector in our region, it was about 4.3% was the average net profit, which is very low. So, so we don't have much margins here to play with. So cutting energy costs is a big one. And energy, I always view energy spending as being completely lost money. Yes, you have to put the lights on. Yes, you have to power the motors, but if there's we can do it for less money, that's money that goes into the bottom line. Spending money on heating, and electricity, there's no there's no value added there other than it does turn the motors and, put, and it does light up the facility so you can see. But definitely saving money and our daughter was the first step in terms of finding a goal. Then actually planning a first project. So we've done over 100 projects. The 100 projects we've done aren't just about saving energy. Some are about policies. Uh, for example, if you want to buy a, 
a hybrid vehicle or electric vehicle, we'll give a $2,000 or $3,000 incentive to our staff on top of whatever the governments give. So we have policies, we have buying procedures, we have educational programs for our staff, we look at maintenance. So we, there's a whole variety of areas to actually do projects, not just putting in new motors. So even a insurance company can do work on improving their carbon footprint, but they can also do things in terms of their staff to incentivize the work there, putting in preferred parking in the front for staff who, co who carpool. There's a whole variety of different things other than just energy savings. So then, so starting with projects, I really recommend those projects be done in such a way you can actually measure the results. We did a big project, a lighting project at a company up in Waterloo, over a thousand light fixtures. Those thousand light fixtures are, have mains, basically wall units where the power is coming to those lights. We, we, after the project was done, the customer said, we don't see much savings. They went from, from T12s to T5s. And when we actually did a pie chart of their energy, the lights were about 5% of their total bill. And had we done analysis of the project at the mains where the lights were connected to before and after, we could have shown the customer more savings. But their fluctuation in terms of energy use, they had a huge compressor, huge laser. A laser uses more power than my whole company. So you really have to do those projects in such a way that you can show actual savings, actual results. If you don't, you're going to fall flat right up, right out the gate. You've got to have real tangible results for your team, for the, for the top people in your company, the, the decision makers to show them you're actually getting results. If you don't do that, then this step of actually doing things will fail. So you've got to have some before and after measurements. Then I had a benchmark. One of the benchmarks for us was how many dollars of sales go out our physical door for every unit of energy. We calculated that back in 2006 to 2008, we were shipping about $6 of product for every kilowatt hour. And now we're shipping over $20 of product for every kilowatt hour. And if you look at that measurement, we're not looking at how much we're spending for that kilowatt hour because that's going up, right? So it would be unfair to say we're sending this much product for this much energy spent. It's about consume. That we have a really nice clean benchmark there. Some benchmarks, for example, the extruding company I mentioned earlier, they could look at how many units of energy they're using for every linear foot. An insurance company could do how much are we spending per policy on energy. And so every company can have their own benchmark. For us, it's dollars of sales per kilowatt hour, right? So we've tripled, more than tripled our output. Measuring, we put mains, we put every main in our plant, even the smaller ones, we put in a total of 12 sensors that measure how much those mains are consuming. And to those, we know this main has a big 900 ton press. This main has a big 25 foot CNC machining center. We know how much each of those machines is using at any moment. So we can actually see if there's a, a real big jump. I know the Canadian Tire up in the 407 of North of Toronto, they have one main on the facility, just one, and that's all they needed because it's a warehouse. All they have is electric forklifts. But when they put that main in, they found out that at five o'clock in the afternoon, there was a huge spike. And they couldn't figure out, well, we don't have really any equipment here. Why is there a huge spike? If they hadn't put that main in, that, that sensor, they would never have found this, this spike. They found out was all the staff were plugging in the electric forklifts in at five. Well, half their bill was based on that spike. That's a piece of information that the utilities don't really divulge. They're not hiding it. It's a technical thing. Over half the electric bill for companies is on that spike, the demand, the highest charge of the month. So by taking those 
those electric forklifts and putting in timers, they were actually able to spread out the charging of the forklifts and reduce that spike. So they could have seen 40 to 50%, maybe 60% decrease. I don't have the data from them for that, but they definitely saw a decrease because they spread out the, the, the charging throughout the shift. Yeah. So, and then finally, just repeat, keep going. So just because you got you know, five projects, keep going. We're over a hundred projects now, and we're documenting those projects with the postgraduate school at McMaster University. And our plan is to actually show each project, what it costs, what it's saving us, what's the greenhouse gas effect. And our emissions are down from 262 tons of GHG gases per year, down to 60 to 70 tons. Last year was incredible. We had a record year of sales. Our emissions only went to 68 tons. From the previous year, 60 tons. So we increased our sales by 50%, but our emissions went up only around 13%. It's astounding, the efficiency. I sometimes can't believe it, but it's the sum total of those 100 plus projects. It's a, if you saw the chart, it looks like our stock is declining, our, our value is declining, but it's actually showing our energy usage is declining. So I, I just summarized it in five lines, purpose, benchmark, projects, measure, and repeat. Those are the five that I've got. I have golden rules, like pick the lowest hanging fruits, wrestle your power factor down. That's the one that the Canadian Tire did. We did that as well. Our power factor was horrible. We replaced all our lights, install programmable thermostats, or if you have them, program them, right? Mm. And lock them too, to prevent people from messing around with them. And then expand your projects to include waste and then buy equipment based on energy usage. A lot of people don't think about usage of a computer. You can buy a 85%, 90% efficiency transformer inside there. You can actually look for more efficient computers and the cost is incrementally nothing compared to the efficiency of that. So definitely buying, it has to be incorporated, but those are the golden rules on our website, purpose, benchmark, projects, measure, and then repeat. So a couple things, it's, it's so interesting how people refine and come up with this. So it kind of follows a model that business uses data collection, data analytics, developing a plan based on the analytics, implementing based on the plan because of the analytics, and then reporting and feedback on what actually occurred as, and it's continual, never ends. Yes. And it's interesting because I think most business owners or management or companies do that in almost every input, large input, but it's not factored or done that much on energy slash carbon. So I, I congratulate you, Paul, on that, because you freaking nailed it. I am interested, before I get into my next question, you had mentioned the extreme drop in carbon emissions. Was that scope one, two, and three, or what was that tracked in? And so scope one being sort of the natural gas heating, scope two is electricity, scope three is your outside suppliers. Can you share with our audience what, what that reduction Sure. So, so we have a, a beautiful chart that shows the drop because we're tracking it on a website, the emissions. It's really wonderful to have that. Actually, I recommend that as being one of the core things you do is actually find a website where you can actually enter your electrical consumption. You can enter the cubic meters of natural gas you're burning. So that would be scope one, water usage, employee commuting, natural gas, electricity. Those are really our four big areas that we track. Through Sustainable Waterloo, we have access to a particular website where we've been uh, tracking that since 2006. And electricity has gone down around 72%. And that's 
Somebody once said to me, oh, that's because Ontario changed and closed all the coal plants. They were partially right. Uh, I would say about 10% of our drop has been because of the coal plants, but our actual emissions is relative to the gigajoules of energy or just joules of energy. That's gone down by 72%. So actual usage measured at the individual mains in the shop has gone down 72%. Commuting, it's incredible. Our staff has doubled since 2006. We're around 32 staff. Our commuting has gone down. It speaks more to the technology of the vehicles are more efficient today. But I drive a Hyundai Ionic electric, fully electric. My wife drives a Prius and we have given the incentive for hybrid electric vehicles to our staff, several of them. So there's a certain portion of that is because of the vehicles that we're driving today. And um, natural gas has gone down massively. And part of that was the earlier project with the bay doors, but we've also implemented other systems like those programmable thermostats. We used to have seven thermostats in the shop and we put in plastic covers to stop people from messing around with them. And those plastic covers was disappear. We had some thermostats in the old section of the building that weren't even programmable. It was just a, a tile. So we killed all seven thermostats. We put one in the office that's locked with a, a button sequence. And we agreed as a company to have 62 degrees Fahrenheit, just around 18 degrees Celsius in the shop at all times. And uh, that thermostat is programmable. So at night it sets back. Some people think, oh, setting back doesn't really save energy. If you look at white papers and research, yes, yeah, setting the thermostat back after hours or weekends when nobody's working does save energy. One, one area that I, I found fascinating that I hadn't thought of was this gentleman came to our office one day and says, I've got capacitors to put on your motors. I thought it was all smoke and mirrors, you know, snake oil salesman tactic. But uh, I said, you know what, let's try a few motors. And the good thing on that one was we actually measured it at the main where those motors were powered from. And the results were quite good. Our power factor was around 70 to 75. And, it, and you will get dinged by the utilities but at the time it was, you had to be 85 or higher to not get a surcharge for it, right? So we're getting dinged and penalized on every bill. So we put those few capacitors at the beginning weren't enough to bring us up to, to 85 or, or I think actually the number is now is 90%. You have to be 90%. And so we did a few motors. It actually did work. We actually saw a reduction in, in usage. And we also saw a reduction in the, the charge at that moment when you turn the motor on. So we put in more and I chose a gentleman who was really good he actually measured all the motors and said you know what here's motors i would not do there's no benefit for you doing those definitely don't do your lights there's people selling capacitors for lights capacitors only work on motors that turn right um, so we did those few motors and our power factor is in the, the low 90s now and our consumption went down as well so half our bill is based on this that big spike that's been reduced and then our consumption is down as well and that really was a huge energy saver right there and those things just sit there on the wall beside the motors and they just do their work year after year without any maintenance. So Paul, with all the things that you've done, what, what are the major challenges of becoming a sustainable business? I think it would be, one would be sort of freezing like a deer in the headlights. Where do I start? Right? I think the easiest is to say, look, where are we spending the most money? Uh, lighting I think should be done automatically because lighting in a commercial facility could be 30% of the cost of the facility, just the lighting alone. When I drive by home and I live in Kitchener, and I see all these office buildings, nobody in them, and all the lights are on. I don't understand why they're keeping the lights on. I would understand a few emergency lights by the exit signs and so on inside the facilities. But these are facilities with all the lights on. So there's no motion sensors. So if you go to our facility now, there's motion sensors in all the plant lights. 
there's motion sensors in all the hallways and bathrooms in the in here in the office. We've got about 15 staff in the office and we've zoned the lighting so that when some people come in early at four o'clock, they put their area on. So we don't have the whole office lit up for one person, right? So those are simple things that can be done quickly and uh, you could bring in the professional. I'm a engineering background, I'm not an engineer, but I've worked with and been mentored by a professional mechanical engineer and I work in automation. So limit switches and timers and, and programmable systems are familiar to me. So I come with that skill set. but if a business owner doesn't have that, they might just want to ask the local utilities. Local utilities are doing free audits. They can come in. I would look at possibly getting two. I've seen some audits. I thought, wow, this audit's not really value added. It's not really you know, helping the business owner because they can be quite elementary, but definitely low hanging fruit. I've seen facilities when I pass Milton, where the natural gas cogen plant is, there's some big warehouses there with literally almost 50 or 60 doors. And I see all these doors open and I just don't know if they realize how much heat is being lost outside those doors. So low hanging fruits first and, and measure it so you can actually see some success. Otherwise you're going to have management say, you know, this is not worthwhile. We got, so that'd be one rule. Second rule is not understanding that projects can save money. A lot of business owners, even today, even recently, think that sustainability is going to cost them money. It's going to cost them jobs. I have never seen that situation. It would have to be the most mismanaged implementation of sustainability to have, to have people lose jobs and to lose money. There's so much money to be saved. For us, we save somewhere in the vicinity of about $130,000 a year on energy costs. Great points, Paul. So what are the other benefits of being a sustainable business? I know you focused a little bit on, you know, company culture and things like that, but can you highlight some other benefits that you've seen? I've discovered one, I started 17 years ago, about year nine or 10, I discovered that when we're doing applications for funding, you can get funding still. So I just got to reach out to the local utility and they'll direct you to where to get the funding. I know that the natural gas suppliers are giving funding, but we were doing the application for a compressor and they were going to give us approximately I can't remember, the value of the incentive was about $7,000, which was quite substantial because it was a $17,000 system. So they were going to give us 7,000, which reduced the project cost to around 10,000. That was really a good incentive from the Ontario government. So we looked at also how much energy we would save every year and it was around three to $4,000, right? But what we didn't realize was that that compressor that we were replacing, we were spending almost 7,000 a year on maintenance. When we installed the, the smaller compressor, we had a professional firm coming in and do an audit. You, there's quite good air compressor companies that are coming in and doing maintenance. They, so they can do an audit for you. And they said, Paul, you're using a 20 horsepower compressor. You could get away with a 10 horsepower. I'll say half. It was just, just common sense, but it's not common sense actually. The compressor that we put in was a screw compressor, which they're notorious for running all day long. And the one that we had was a screw compressor replacing it with another screw compressor. So again, that's why I thought the savings would be only half. But the new compressor would actually turn off once the, the big tank was full of air up to 120 pounds per square inch. When that reached that capacity, it would turn off. So we actually looked at our energy usage on the old one. It was a continuous line with a small little dip when it was idling. But if you stood beside it, you wouldn't hear a difference between idling and under load new compressor, when it was running, first of all, it was consuming roughly less than half, but then it would turn off. So now you have this on and then it's totally nothing, on and totally nothing. So we actually saw a reduction of 90% in the electricity usage. 
That was not the big savings though. The big savings was instead of spending 7,000 a year on maintenance on the old compressor, we were only spending around 2,500 a year on the new compressor. So we're saving, let's say four and a half thousand uh, a year on maintenance, whereas with energy, we're only saving three to 4,000. So maintenance was a bigger savings. And that was never a part of any formulas I saw from the utilities for incentives for helping business owners decide on, do I do this project or not? They never asked, okay, what are the, what's the maintenance savings? For example, ice rinks, if they can get better, more efficient systems to cool the ice, right? The maintenance cost on those must be five, six figures a year, right? So definitely uh, we just got a new, I uh, just ordered a new HVAC for our office. I went with an 18 SEER level uh, system. The incremental cost between a 15 SEER and an 18 SEER will be paid for in a matter of a few years on that unit. But the maintenance costs, just because it's running less and it's also going to have a carbon dioxide sensor that will only force it to run when it sees the carbon dioxide dipping below a certain level. Before, old HVAC units just ran routinely. It's actually difficult to find that information, but definitely we did. This is what I find fascinating. I presented to a bunch of accountants and they asked me for, give us some stuff we can tangibly do. I said, you know, when you have your monthly income statements, you have one line called plant maintenance, right? Shop maintenance. How about you break that out to your top 10 work centers, you know? Put in the 900 ton press, put in the, the 25 foot machining center, put in the paint booth. See how much you're spending on maintenance. Maybe it's those pieces of equipment that you should focus your efforts to reduce and see, hey, we're spending a lot of money on this paint booth in terms of the motors burning out. How about looking at something to solve that by a higher efficiency motor, putting in a soft start so that, that when that motor kickstarts, kick, kick it doesn't spike and maybe that's burning out the belts. There, that's where you start to fine tune your efforts and really say, here, look, we only have a limited amount of time. Let's look at what are our costs for each of these work centers and only pick two a year. And that's where you start to really you know, hone in on the problem areas and find some real savings. And creativity happens too when you have some control that way. So that's why we put in 12 sensors in our facility for measuring power usage. That's a long, long-winded answer. I think that's great. I do a lot of maintenance planning at my job as well. And I often think because you think, okay, this is a system you have to maintain it, just do whatever maintenance you need to do. We don't really critique it or look too much into it or actually question the maintenance that we're doing. So I really like that perspective. I haven't heard it before. And I think it's actually really obvious in a way, but somehow we just brush past it. Oh, I had lunch with Bob Willard. And I said to Bob, this is that nine year, 10 year mark into our voyage. I said, Bob, I discovered an eighth sustainability advantage. <laughs> he said, you've got a book called seven sustainability advantages for business. I said, you know what? There's an eighth one that you don't have in there. And it's, I said, that means we're missing out on maintenance. I mean, maintenance is actually in many areas, a bigger savings than the power. And yeah. even that will have a greenhouse gas effect. If you're having to do less maintenance and buy less motors and do less repairs and less downtime in the production areas, that's going to improve your profits, improve your costs. It's going to improve employee morale. Employees hate having machines down. I mean, they want to be working. They don't want to be sitting around waiting. So I asked Bob, Bob, will you change the title of your book to eight sustainability benefits? He said, no, but he hundred percent agreed. We both slapped our forehead. Like this is incredible. How could we have missed? maintenance as a benefit of sustainability. Agreed. Well, I want to pick up on a statement that you made and, uh, and that is, you know, 
if it's incredibly beneficial to an organization to pursue sustainability and that you really have to screw up really badly if you're not making money on it. And I think, again, you stated this at the very beginning, most organizations think this is just a big cost money hole. I'm just going to spend money and I'm not going to get anything from it. But you've articulated, no, wait a minute. No, it's, it's one of probably, I say to organizations, this could be one of the best investments you make in your company in return on investment. It might be quicker, but the challenge is most people don't measure that like you have with your yes. way. But where I wanted to go is, based on what you've said, why do you think sustainability isn't part of everyday business now? Why do you think people aren't doing the things that you are doing now? That is an incredibly difficult question, which probably deserves a few answers. I just don't think there's there's one. I think you would agree. But one thing is that the actual experience of doing something, it's hard to communicate that with words. That's why I tell stories about how we did this and that. That communicates more than charts and data and so on. But one thing is that business owners really are overloaded and busy. I mean, we get the number of emails I get in a day is insane. It's absolutely insane. I mean, the fact that you work at, at reducing emails in our office and, you know, stop copying everybody in the office, that sort of thing. And having somebody to guide us and, and say, look, here's the simple outline of how to get this going. I think we're missing that sometimes. Government, I don't want to put too much on government because I think at the bottom line, as business owners, it's, it's really up to us to get things going. Government just helps and incentivizes, but they're not the ones who are going to go in. Sometimes there's not enough, let's say, laws or at least bottom line benchmarking for equipment. So, for example, I was on a roundtable with a, a minister of parliament that invited me, and they asked exactly this question, how can we help businesses adopt sustainability? And I said, well, you've really got to have better rules in terms of equipment efficiency. If you say that an office has to have at least an 18-seer efficiency HVAC system, then that helps because it, that creates research and development. It helps business owners because they don't have time to research this. It helps them, okay, well, I'm going to buy 18 because That's what I've, I've been dictated to do. That's going to save me energy. We don't always have to know the, the math behind the decision-making. And I said that to the minister. I said, you know what? We really need government to set higher standards for equipment. The, the minister probably said to me, that's not our job. And I was blown away by his, his comment. That was the end of my input. This is the one thing you could do for us is to set higher standards for equipment so that when I did the expansion of, of my company in 2006, we went from 11,400 square feet to 26,000 square feet. The, the ceiling of the new expansion, I asked the, the contractor, what's the R value you're putting in there? Because I know homes at the time were R50 and, and the contractor said, oh, it's R5. I said, are you, you're like joking, right? It's R5. That's the best you can do. And he said, Paul, we can do R20. I said, well, R20 is not R50, but it's definitely better than R5. How much for this facility, which was about $650,000, how much is it going to cost me extra on that $650,000? He said, Paul, it'll be about $6,000. It wasn't an email and research. He said, Paul, it'll be $6,000. It was a conversation, a two-minute conversation. I said, $6,000. Okay, so that's less than 1%. You're going to quadruple the R value. And that's not a, a linear relationship, by the way. It's actually stepped up. So it's, it's a much higher energy savings with R20, not four times better, but scientifically it's more. So I said, you know what? That's fantastic. That's go ahead and do it. But they never offered that to me. So do business owners have that background? No, we need the government to set higher standards. They shouldn't allow 
industrial buildings today to be installed with R5 ceilings. That's criminal. First of all, they're robbing Canadians of money because we're spending it on heating. We should be spending it on new equipment, paying our staff better, not on heating. That's absolutely asinine. And for that Minister of Parliament to deny that responsibility, who is it going to be then? Who's going to set the higher standards? You, Your departments should be setting those standards, and you're not doing that. That was frustrating that day. I've got other stories where business owners have said to me that they're going to lose jobs. That lack of understanding, this is going to really re revitalize their income statement. They're spending too much money on, on heating electricity. They should be spending it on new equipment and new staff and paying their staff better. That's what they were. But I, I have an analogy. My wife wanted a child. I said, no. Uh, my friends, oh, having a child is wonderful. The moment we had our daughter, I attest that having a child is wonderful, but it's the same thing. Until you actually experience a few projects and you see the money coming in and, and the money saved, it's so hard to convince people who don't have that gut feeling to actually do something with sustainability. It, sustainability has revolutionized Veriform. And I see it when, I, when they did that audit of the seven divisions and Veriform came up the clear leader in every category, except for two. Owners don't have a feeling in their gut of how it can help them. And we're setting the bar too low in many areas. We need to set it higher so that business owners don't have to become professional energy managers to make decisions. They need some of the stuff to be initiated by government. I am so glad you said that because it isn't a one person job. It's not a one department job. It's actually everyone in the organization starting at the top. And because a lot of times organizations go, okay, I got to fix this. I'm going to hire this energy manager and they're going to fix the world. And the energy managers, as bright as they are, and you know they tend to be very bright, highly educated people, if they don't have the buy-in from the rest of the team or the organization, they might get some projects in, one or two capital projects, but effectively they're stopped there and they can't move it any forward. So I, I find most times they, they might last a year or two and then they move off because they can't do anything. So you've kind of proved that it is, you don't really need an energy manager you can do it yourself. You just have to become aware and educated, quite frankly. And shop around too. I think when you're starting something this vital and this important, don't go with the first energy manager or consultant that you might come across. And here, I'll give you an example. This, this is really important. There was an insurance company here that was redoing the HVAC system in their building. And the utility brought in an engineer, a PNG, to do analysis. His cost to do the analysis was equivalent to the money, amount of money the utility was going to give. And I said, I, th I said, that's, that's crazy. So how is it possible? It was almost $10,000. And I said, how is it possible that this small building around 20, 20,000 square feet, that the energy, that this energy manager engineer would, would charge that much. There has to be. So we actually found that the, this, this engineer had said, look, we have to have every single motor, every single HVAC motor has to be analyzed. I said, no, you don't. You can just do the whole building envelope and measure it as a unit, as opposed to looking at every motor. So I remember the customer was so frustrated and I, I swear to you that probably killed all future initiatives. Mm. So I think that we have to be careful that, that the solution doesn't cost more than the savings. I mean, I, I don't mean to be negative, but that one was a really negative story because they killed that company's future initiatives. Yeah, I, I think people have had bad experiences or they think it's a project and they don't actually measure the savings year after year after year. Their, their measurement is the incentive money. So they don't actually recognize that it's ongoing savings if it's done correctly. So 
Yeah, I think there's so many reasons why it's not done, but you have to really mess up. You have to really mess up. That that was an example of a messed up situation. But generally speaking, I think we're in agreement that that uh, projects to execute them is can be quite simple if you follow the simple rules. Know where to measure before, measure after, and then, like you said, year after year. That's the people ask me now. What are you going to do now? You've got 100 projects. I don't have to do any more projects. I just have to maintain those mm-hmm. 100 projects. Now that maintain portion is important, but for those people who are just starting out, that's not a, a real consideration yet. But the ones who've done 50, 60, 70 projects, there's not a lot out there, but I can tell you if a small 26,000 square foot facility can have a hundred initiatives, everybody could do that. And then if every company in Canada did that, we would be wasting less money on energy and have higher profits, have better employee retention, less maintenance costs, and we could focus on our business rather than Oh, are we making enough money to get through this month? Thanks for a great episode, Paul. What is the biggest takeaway you can give our listeners from this episode? The biggest takeaway is expect to have more benefits than you can imagine. The maintenance was a beautiful one. We never expected to see maintenance savings. We did a simple project with a coffee machine where we had a a co-op student here and she said, Paul, I'm going to tackle this coffee machine. Well, she researched it and she bought a vacuum sealed coffee maker. And so we had a, originally a machine that the two heating pads were on all day and the coffee would get burned and we were constantly making new coffee every hour. Well, she got this vacuum one where the coffee would stay hot for six or seven hours and it tasted so good. The oils and the coffee weren't lost through the heating. And so we were saving on coffee grounds, we're saving on energy and we weren't renting a machine anymore. All because we just said, how do we attack this problem from a sustainability standpoint? The staff got far better coffee and we weren't wasting money on energy and buying constantly new coffee. And so we could actually afford the premium PC brand coffee and we put a little sign above the coffee machine showing the payback. So the big takeaway is expect amazing things to happen. Creativity will start to happen. If you just say, how can this problem have a sustainability benefit for us? That's the big takeaway. It's so hard to communicate, just like um, having our daughter. Until we had, my wife was right, but that was something I had to experience to actually to say, yes, it's right. So I'm not saying everybody should have a child, but until you have <laughs> experienced something, it's so really hard to talk about it and to want to do. Dave, what's your biggest takeaway? Well, Lysandra, we it has to be short because it could be really long. Paul, in his organization, and it's an SME, so it would be deemed as a smaller organization, look at what he has done look at how he's enhanced his company look at the the financial benefits associated look how he's retained staff look at the product he got more quality more value going forward i think paul's demonstrated that if you have the desire you have the data and you have a continuous process that you follow this is a no-brainer it's a no-brainer So I was really excited and pleased to hear what Paul had to say. Yeah, I have two takeaways, actually. So I would say my first one is change your headset. Think about every dollar you spend, question services, question maintenance, question bills, decisions, specifications, whatever it is. Start looking more critically at every aspect of your business. And then also I would say, this is kind of from your, the last answer of our last question. Don't let one negative experience deter you from sustainability. So something I was thinking of, it's like, okay, if you go to a restaurant and you get a bad burger, you're not never going to order a burger again. You're just going to go somewhere else and get a different burger. So I think that we need to have that sort of perspective when we're at work and not let one negative experience 
and sustainability deter us from trying it again. I agree. I agree. All right. Very, very good. Thanks, Dave and Paul. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn post. See you next week.